Welcome to the future of gaming. GM friends, and welcome to the future of gaming. You're listening to our weekly Fogcasts. We have Philip Collins and myself, Nico Vreke, as the usual FogDAO representatives. And we, today, we have a very, very special guest. <laughs> if you have spent some time in our Discord, you will know this man. He goes by the name of Tim Cotton. He's the founder and CEO of Scripted. He's very opinionated about a large number of topics when it comes to Web3, when it comes to gaming. Um and when I say opinionated, I mean that in the best way possible. Um, so, Tim, amazing to finally have you here. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. You know, I've, I, I love Fog Down. I love what uh, I hear every every week in the Fogcast. And I'm sure that every week when you're listening to the Fogcast, you're like, you're, you're, you know, you can't wait to like give your opinion about the things that we're <laughs> discussing. So this is your chance, man. Or just this is it. brains, because there's yeah. so much knowledge here that I love talking about, especially from a game designer standpoint, you know? I appreciate the, the, the nice words. Good. So what's the plan to talk about today? Um, as usual, I'm, I'm just going to stop trying to predict what we're going to talk about, because we don't really ever know. <laughs> but the first topic I wanted to touch upon, which is kind of non-Web3 related, at least initially, like... I find a way to turn it into Web3 um, Web topic anyway, right? So uh, what happens? Um, last week, I believe on, on Sunday, the... When was this? I don't know by heart. I think Sunday, the 26th or the 19th of February, CSGO, which is a more than 10 years old game, reached yeah. its top peak concurrent user base ever. So... More than 10 years after the game was launched, they managed in some shape, way, or form to get uh, like uh, the largest amount of people playing the game at the same time ever. Why is this special? It's special because there was, in terms of gameplay, very, very little updates, right? That the game didn't change profoundly. Um, there was not a lot of big, big new content that came out. It's an old game. It works in an old engine. If you look at it, if you compare it to the newest Call of Duty, if you compare it to most of the modern games, it looks pretty shitty. Um, people keep complaining about it. Everyone kind of hates it. But still, people seem to love it. It's a really, really well-designed game. It's it's well-balanced. Um, it has a fantastic esports scene. And then, now comes the Web3 angle. One of the things that happened was that they launched a new um, crate drop, which includes yep. new skins and gun skins and so and and they it was like it had been seven months which was a long time and so people seem to care so much about ownership of digital assets and ways to show that off that the drop of crates which are essentially loot boxes with skins in them has had resulted in you know such a boost in in player base so you know we we might still be onto something in this whole um crypto thing after all I like your enthusiasm for that. <laughs> I, I've always felt that cosmetic design items were the way to go when you want to sustain a community for a while without burning out everyone. Yeah, yeah. I also think that the and especially Riot, I would say, has has perfected this playbook or at least they started it. Is that you know, cosmetics are a great way to monetize without essentially taking fun away from other people because if you're doing pay to win, which is something that I absolutely. Um, dislike and, and hate um yeah it's not the case but cosmetics are, are just perfect and and the amount of money people are willing to spend for cosmetics just keeps blowing my mind yeah and i mean i think we've seen this a lot with the battle pass model in the past right where 
I'll log into Call of Duty at the start of a season. Haven't played in two months. Probably won't wait for an, probably won't for another two months. But the 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 notion of new content and a new objective to explore, even with minimal changes to the gameplay, really is enough just to get people to kind of get back onto the platform, try it out. And I think, like you mentioned, Riot's done a really good job of this. And like the the Valorant market, where it refreshes every 24 hours, so you end up coming to check on what your latest skins are, and then you inevitably end up playing a game and you get sucked right back in so yeah i think we've seen cosmetics be an interesting driver of engagement and retention which is kind of funny because it's so non-core to the game especially in these non-pay-to-win titles but um i've i've been a victim of this myself so psychologically i have have a pretty good example of it working yeah i i probably i don't know if i've told you two this story before but when i was at ea back in the early 2000s when free-to-play was first really coming onto the scene and we didn't know what to call everything yet I remember we did a brown bag lunch uh, with someone from um, EA Shanghai, and they had this, they had all this knowledge about the Korean market and the Chinese market about how these cosmetic games were working, and they were really focused on cart racers. And he warned us, you know, if you go full, if you go pay to win with this, it's cheap and it's easy and you'll make a lot of money, but it's going to burn out your player bases all the faster. And, you know, we really did experiment with this at EA. Uh, In the online vertical with Sims Online, Ultima Online, we tried different free-to-play mechanisms for both sides. And hands down, the one that kept subscription levels like steady or going back up was the cosmetic stuff. People wanted to decorate their houses. As a side discussion here, I wanted to um, get your thoughts and and specifically Philip's thoughts on esports and how you're looking at games and game design and its potential for thriving esports scene. So I'm I'm an esports fan. If if you've spent time in our the east the dedicated esports channel in the Discord, uh, the Fogdow Discord, you'll know this. Um, and I've noticed that you know I keep coming back to or I'll, I have this draw towards games that I've played and I've spent more money in games that I enjoy the competitive scene of. And um, it it feels to me like one of the one of the reasons why CS:GO is doing so well is because CS:GO is extremely well like a good um, esports to um, have. Uh, sorry, it's a good game to have an esports around, right? I uh, almost eight, eight months ago there was um, like a, a live. So basically, the the esports. Which one was it? I, I forgot the name. It was a tournament, and the finals were here in Belgium, and I went, and it's just amazing. The vibe is amazing. It's well designed because it's it's with rounds, right? And so you basically have like an exciting climax almost every, let's say, two minutes, right? Because every round mm-hmm. has like kills and, and and a lot of stuff happens. Yep. If you compare that to other sports like football, for example, you can you can like in football, people can pause the the the, the ball around for ninety minutes and and nothing happens, right? And then in, in in CS:GO, you can you know there's so much skill expression as well, right? You can have one player who's just lucky who kills five people all of a sudden, and and these are just crazy moments. And so sorry, I'm rambling, but you see that I'm. I'm I like this. Um, but my, my point is that I think part of CSGO's success and part of League of Legends' success and part of other games' success is that they are well designed to be a enjoyable, like watchable um, esports. And I would say that um, T, uh, sorry, Overwatch is probably the counterexample of that. I don't know if you guys ever tried watching an Overwatch game as a spectator. It's just horrible. You have no clue what's going so on, right? Hard. There's a bunch of shields and it's... then just, just like these small characters that are the DPSs that are like blinking around on the map. And then you have like snipers like trying to shoot around the shields. So, uh, Phil, 
I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to my question. Um, wh- how do you think about this? And is this something you take into, ex- uh, into consideration? Yeah, I mean, I think competitive competition is an incredibly valuable asset for games that want to be the type of forever game that we've seen counter-strike become and that we've seen riot excel at through league and now through valorant um it, it keeps people coming back there's a very clear progression system um the game it feels very linear at times where you don't even have to change the gameplay you don't even need new maps very frequently you just want to continue to excel at this at this structure that 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 you know um, very well as a player, and so I think from a from a game perspective, it's it's extremely compelling for retention, longevity, and maximizing the value of those users over time. Because like you, I've seen myself spending the most in free to play games that I'm extremely competitive in and want to get better and want to be able to show that I've gotten better through um, my rank uh, increasing. And I think that's probably at the core of this conversation with, with Counter-Strike is the, the cosmetics bring people back, but the reason that their attention is still even engaged is because of this competitive loop of, of progression and improvement. Um, on like the, the organized esports side, it's a little more difficult because obviously publishers benefit, right? Esports at the end of the day is effectively marketing for these games. Um, it is the the next level of achievement and progression for for an average player like me, where I'm not only trying to get to the top rank, I'm trying to potentially get this to be a livelihood if I'm a if I'm a teenager or whatnot. And so um, it's it's increasing the stakes of my progression, and that is very compelling to players and to publishers who can really monetize that and capture the value of those users over long periods of time. I think where I struggle on the more like organized esports side is the fact that you are in many cases with franchising paying in to be the marketable asset. You're really capturing eyeballs on an asset that isn't yours and at the end of the day from a scalability perspective even if you're driving 50 million dollars a year in revenue off of off of that attention it's like how how big does it actually get um and so i've struggled to see like as a as a venture investor the scalable opportunity to invest in like an organization but i definitely see the value of the competition that those organizations are fostering for the games themselves Your thoughts, Tim? Well, I've got two thoughts, especially in regards to CSGO, right? Um, Just as Phil was saying, what we're really talking about is that there is a game loop there that is very simple and very different from Overwatch. And I speak from, I'm a big Overwatch fan. Um, I have survived OW2, right? I I love to play OW2 as my, like, like my daily 10, 15 minute fix. That's, That's where I can just sink some time and not worry about things. But you said it, watching the League is painful because Overwatch tries to be many game modes all at the same time. CSGO has a straightforward model. You know, you've got, you you, you go five by five, you die. You, okay, keep going till mission is done. That's watchable. You know, there's a sense of stake there. When you're respawning in another game, you're really just hoping for the, the the anticipation of conflict again and again and again. And like Nico was saying, people are dancing around the map. It's all kind of hard to actually pay attention to. Um, not that it doesn't have its fun moments, but what, what CSGO does so well, right, is that because of that simplified game mode, it can have a much larger metagame. And as Phil was saying, like that causes this entire ecosystem of esports where you have every incentive, just like real life college sports or um, major major national brands. You've even got cheaters, 
that take it to the next level, right? I mean, back in 2020, like 40 coaches got banned out of CSGO for stream snipe enabling because they had a cool camera hack that they were abusing, right? So what you end up with in these systems is if it's worth money, if it is monetizable, someone will find a way to get that money, right? And that's a natural human trait. So I applaud CSGO for having such a strong design that it cannot just last for 10 years, but it can keep growing interest as the you know population of youth scales. Yeah. What's extra interesting too about the game design is that it's almost contrary in many cases to what we see today, focusing on social interactions and network effects of friend groups, where a lot of these competitive focus games are actually quite limiting in terms of the social dynamics because, you know, if you're if you're a certain rank and your friends are three tiers below you, you actually can't really play together in the modes that you care the most about. And so it almost becomes inherently unsocial from a friend group perspective. Um and it really is that retention really does feel primarily driven from the game and your desire to improve as an individual in a lot of cases, because, you know, you're not hopping on to play with all your best friends that are, right. uh, are very different in skill levels. Yeah. Have that's you, a really interesting insight. Go oh, ahead, sorry. Then. Go ahead, Nico. Um, I was going to ask Phil, do you, have you guys invested in anything around toxicity in games? You know what? We haven't we we haven't directly. We invested in an anti cheat solution far way back in the first fund, um, but I think the way we've been looking at toxicity, which is certainly prevalent in competitive games, that's that's probably where it gets as as bad as it can be. We, we've been trying to to debate the the approach that we feel strongest about because it feels like there's there's two kind of angles you can come at it from. One is punitive. And when I think of punitive, I think of more of voice moderation tools where something bad is said and then that player is correctly punished because of the action that they've taken. And then the other side is preventative. And we've seen a lot of people trying to do, you know, universal gaming IDs that go across games and you're building up your social equity by having this kind of KYC profile that really does represent you and only you in the gaming world. Um, mm -hmm. And... By, by having that social equity hanging over the player, you're discouraging bad behavior because that damages you as, a, as an individual or as a profile. And I think we've seen interesting cases of both of them, um, but we haven't, we haven't directly invested in anything that falls into one of those two categories. Tim, you're smiling. Sorry, Tim was smiling so much, so I don't know. I want to know what's, what was going <laughs> yeah, on inside you know, his head. I, um, you know, it's, it, it's funny to me because this problem is as old as time itself, right? And the moment we hooked people up to each other, griefing started happening, scams started happening, uh, terrible things on voice. On um, it, It's funny because uh, AI might actually have a role to play here, right? Because if you look at content moderation tools, right, my favorite are like text channel chats, right, where people are spamming something truly abhorrent, right? Let's, uh, let's just say like some terrible like racial slur or something. Inevitably... You know, all these words get added to the naive filters and, you know, people come up with replacements for them, like in Overwatch, where it just says, I'm trying real hard to be a better person, right? But uh, instead of whatever they had originally said, but then someone figures out, hey, I can just spam a couple of separate lines and make a swastika with it with emojis. And then the content filters like, oh, that's fine. And yet, if you had AI that was trained to not look at the input of the text, but actually look at the render of the text right? And say, hey, that looks real familiar. That might be an interesting application for 
uh, a CS tool, a content moderation tool that really helps out with the future of toxicity. Voice is its own problem. Yeah, I I am um, an interesting approach there because you're right, Phil. It feels like one is punitive and the other one is is kind of preventative. Um, but even more interesting, I I found the the most wholesome approach was League of Legends, who basically had a sort of um, uh, like it's, it's like a, a reward system. At the end of every match, you could like mm. I, I know what the what the term I'm blanking on the term, but you could like you know give a thumbs up to one specific player because of. You know, mm-hmm. friendliness, team player, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And that's, um, that's a, yeah. exactly an mm-hmm. endorsement. And I think those, if you got a few of those, you get like, you know, cosmetic benefits, which brings us to the start of this conversation, um, which uh, is an interesting approach, obviously doesn't fix anything. But I think a, a like moving forward, I do feel like, I, I think there's, there's, um, there's a place for a sort of um, gaming, tr- like a decentralized identifier. Mm-hmm. that you carry across um because in the end as a good player non-toxic player there's no reason why you wouldn't want to use that i feel like or is that or am i being too too centralized about this well it's a, it, i'll just give my quick two cents there so vitalik buterin you know he's working on soulbound tokens right mm-hmm. they put together the um the draft for that and uh, that's one of the many use cases that you would have for such a system, right? Uh, if you can force someone's digital identity to have soul-bound reputation, mm-hmm. then you are achieving kind of what you were all talking about. Mm-hmm. In the metaverse, um, I know the World Wide Web Consortium has thought about that. They've talked about if we're going to have ID systems, we should have a decentralized ID system so that it's in the player or the person's hands to create their own identity and expose as much of it as they want to these various products and platforms, right? That way you could have an alias under it that absolutely was tagged as the toxic slug who was just terrible, but the base reputation probably wasn't. And then you could make another alias that also had a beautiful, shining, angelic reputation, right? Because people put on masks, and that's one of the biggest things with the the whole concept that you're talking about is that people do wear masks when they play games, when they interact in different virtual worlds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. And I mean, our, our platforms are designed around that too. Like Discord is literally created so that you can wear a different mask in every server. There's no centralized mm-hmm. identity. And yep. I think the, the challenge here is going to be the same thing we talk about every single time we discuss interoperability are these different publishers going to be okay with an identifier going from Riot to Take-Two to EA to Activision Blizzard? And I mean, that's a, that's its own hurdle. Um, yeah. But I think there's, there's a value in that when it works, but I think the, the ability to actually get that to work is where the, where yeah. the real struggle is. Yeah. You have to, you have to make it have value to all the parties. Otherwise, no, because then it's just competition for competition's sake, right? It's like open sea and blur, you know, you You've got people like taking shots across the bow on a totally different concept, but really is the way that the royalties are being handled any different from this conversation, really, you know? Talking about OpenSea and Blur, let's talk about NFTs and the next iteration of NFTs, because this is truly what Tim has been waiting for, um, to talk about this. Tim, give give us Um, your thoughts or give us some context first. Yeah, let me ask you this. What do you guys consider to be like the current state, the version one, if you will, of NFTs? What what are we seeing right now? What is version one? If we were going to like put a pin on it and just say we're done. 
So in my head, the current version of NFTs is essentially the ERC-721 standard. Um, that's pretty much it. Like, pretty basic. You know, you can own an NFT. You can sell an NFT. You can transfer it. Um, and that's you can burn it, right? Which is a form of transferring. And that's pretty much it. That's, for me, what, what the current state of NFTs is. And I guess what uh, I would say 99% of NFTs are. Okay. I think I'd have, yeah, yeah. I think I'd have just about the same view. When I think of current NFTs, I think of immutable ownership from a token ID perspective, but not necessarily immutability of the asset itself uh, in terms in terms of changing metadata. And so right. it's almost like you own you own this specific thing, but the thing is not necessarily particularly well defined from a from a sense of permanence. Yeah, I get you. So. Second follow-up to that, since we're talking about ERC-721 and 1155, no doubt. Do NFTs require a blockchain to be an NFT? Right? There's my philosophical question. So, to me, no, because the whole idea is exactly what Phil said, right? It is a unique identifier for some sort of target data. Right. And there are other ways to enforce that besides a blockchain. I mean, Molly White wrote about this on her blog and she runs um, um, the Web3 is going just great dot com. Right. And so she's always uh, the most uh, scientifically skeptical of, of groups. But she she pointed out that if artists really want an NFT without going through a blockchain, they can absolutely just sign digital signatures and have a chain. Right. A chain of digital signatures that show that the original author had created it, that it was traded, and you don't need a blockchain for that. At the end point, you can just prove it. But, you know, the response I think that we would hopefully have from a Web3 more enthusiastic point is that there are things that blockchain technology gives us that just uh, a sequence of digital signatures by itself does not, right? And so I've had that conversation with other game developers. <laughs> Obviously, you know, in the industry, uh, most take a dim view of blockchain because there's very little a blockchain can do that a centralized database owned by the publisher itself can't, right? Um, on the other hand, there are uh, I've had this conversation at 2 a.m. in a bar crawl. What can the blockchain do differently? One, it can provide you provable fairness. You can have a trustless system, right? That is different. I've worked at companies where we have a virtual world product or a game and employees have embezzled digital assets out of it. They've absolutely just straight up stolen them, generated them, and sold them on the real money market to make some extra cash on the side, right? Which wrecks your economy for the other players and reduces trust in your economy. So blockchain, maybe there is an application there. I'm not saying that I know exactly what the application is, but I'm saying that if you could have a trustless system between player and publisher, that might be of value. And the second thing is scarcity, right? I think I've heard you guys in Fogcast talk about scarcity quite a bit. And an NFT, in the way that Molly White describes the digital signatures, would not be able to enforce scarcity of the underlying asset. With a blockchain, you can. With ERC-721, you can, uh, along with all the other things you mentioned. So yes, I'm with you on version one, right? Being defined in the way you've said it. It is a tradable item. It can be burned. Um, but equally, I don't believe it needs to be on the blockchain. However, people have found really interesting ways to do NFTs that I wasn't anticipating, right? Look at what Bitcoin NFTs are coming out with Ordinal now, right? 
So now that we have... I'd love to have your three-minute explanation on on Bitcoin NFTs. Okay. I'm going to try to Eli-5 this because I'm still still learning myself. So bear with me in mind, right? Um, Bitcoin has the ability since early 2023 to include more data in the message that you go along with goes along with the transaction, right? So there is a published system now called Ordinal so that you can relate a given uh, and I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to say two things. I, the first is that you can just publish NFT net- metadata into Bitcoin's transaction message history, okay? How does that get linked to an ID? Well, someone figured out that every kind of a way to number each Satoshi, you know, which is the smallest, smallest unit of Bitcoin, right? Each Satoshi individually. So you can essentially trade a Satoshi that has an index number, which is interesting because of the way Bitcoin is structured. And that links to the metadata that was inscribed. It's the inscription system inscribed at the time. And there's methods for updating and stuff. There's some black magic witchcraft happening there, right? There's some there's some ideas about how how these satoshis are truly numbered and does it need a secondary system to track them and make expose it to users in the same way that a wallet or MetaMask does, right? So, to me, it's like a, just a natural consequence of what uh, BSV, like Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, was kind of doing by adding the Turing language back in, right? Where they were doing um, NFTs and other things already, and Bitcoin was like, well. Sad inscription, and let's let's do something along those lines, right? So, I think it's an interesting system. I'm very kind of curious to follow along with uh, some of the upcoming releases, right? They look very inter- like very interesting artwork. But I'm sure you could do more than just artwork with them. I appreciate that. So, if I kind of try to explain it back to you, as mm-hmm. I understood it, um, you can make a Bitcoin transaction, a tiny Bitcoin transaction, and where in the text you refer to a individual Satoshi with metadata. And from that moment, that individual Satoshi is linked to that metadata and the owner of that individual Satoshi owns the NFT that it is represented by that metadata. Okay. Very, I, I think that's as close as we can come without getting pedantic. I'll just say well, the one thing is that the transaction itself represents like a Satoshi right? Being traded. It's like mm-hmm. a certain amount of Bitcoin moving. And that's the link to the metadata. Okay. Um, again, this is based on a platform called Ordinal using the inscription system. So there's still kind of like that separation. It's not like a fully native Bitcoin thing. Yeah. It's as native as you can get with Bitcoin. And so, Tim, what do you think is, is why is this interesting? You mentioned like interesting art, which is something yeah. that I'm, I'm not specifically interested in, but I'm, I'm more interested in understanding like why this is cool from a technical point of view, how this differs from what we know today, the NFTs that exist today, before we go into like the upgrade of the NFTs that we that we have today. I feel like I'm going to break your heart then. Oh, I'm just going to... I'm ready. I'm ready. Sorry. It's not really different. Not okay. really. It's just, it's taking a concept that has existed naturally that we thought was smart contract necessary, right? And saying, nah, as long as you have a pointer system, you're good. And that's all it is, a pointer system. And I think I've talked to you guys before about stuff I'm working on where I also have a pointer system. And it also doesn't require this stuff and still can be instantiated later on the blockchain. So 
it's neat. I, I absolutely think it's neat, and I think it will absolutely take a lot of Bitcoin attention for, say, the next two quarters. I think you're going to see a nice little uptick in Bitcoin NFT interest. Yeah, and that's it. Yep. Okay. Yeah, makes sense. It's. Uh, I saw that um, Yuga Labs was now launching a collection there. Um, mm -hmm. Of course they are because they got they got to milk their brand as as much as they can. So um, that doesn't surprise me at all. But as far as like from the understanding that I had was this is as you described it neat, something interesting without like a true true uh, game changing use case. Well, yeah, and see, I don't want to be like a total Debbie Downer, right? I, I don't want to say like, oh, there's no real use case, but it's just, it's an augmented case that already exists. We're not seeing something particularly new. I mean, like if I want to go do this on Bitcoin right now, I think we all understand it's going to cost me about $50 to instantiate that NFT, right? That's that's not getting things in the hands of more users. That's just another, I hate to call it a toy, but it's another rich people's toy to play with right now. Yeah. We're not moving closer to like more people accessing it. Yeah. Good. Back back to the, the NFTs we know and, and that. Yeah. Um, so we were talking about like, okay, we got, we kind of covered version one and then it's kind of like, what, what does version two look like? Right. So we talked about, uh, Bitcoin NFTs probably aren't version two. Right. Um, I am very interested in NFTs that, and I know this is the mission of FogDAO in general, but are not skeuomorphic, that are not just reflecting real-world ideas, that are doing something interesting that we may find a future application for. Maybe we don't know what it is yet, but for the metaverse, right? I have a lot of game designer friends, colleagues, who pretty much just say, hey, and this is reasonable. This is a completely reasonable reaction. There is uh, there is no such thing as item portability in the metaverse. It's all a pipe dream, right? Because if game A has to respect all of game B's digital assets, and then they introduce game C over here, well, now you've got it's not it's a combinatoric nightmare, right? And the great the great hope of like blockchain technology in these games is that maybe we can find a common ground somewhere. I know that there is a, a game developer right now working on a common language for declaring digital assets in the metaverse, right? He's working on every possible tag, XML style kind of thing that you could want to describe an NFT. Is that the right direction to go? I don't know. I really don't. I think there are better things to be said about NFTs being able to lock in value in a virtual economy, right? Um, where we kind of go back towards the simulation of these these worlds, these platforms, less than the, um, what would you call it? The, the pump and dump hype scam, right? Because right now, this is really funny. I was looking, I had, I had on my big screen, right? At my, at my other office, I had a, on the big screen, I had this like chart of like all the NFT adoptions for all some very big projects, some very famous projects that are either still successful or have failed. And all of their curves looked virtually identical. And um, the director of um, one of the directors at George Mason University, who's in charge of the Virginia Serious Game Institute, he walked by and it's James, James Casey, who worked with me at Mythic. And he goes, huh, that looks really familiar. And I didn't have it labeled as NFT data. He just didn't, didn't know what it was. And he said, that looks a lot like the product adoption curve in business. And I was like, Oh, it is. All these deflationary fixed supply NFTs just follow the product adoption curve. Bar maybe a couple, right? Like uh, Bored Apes, 
that can just demand that country club style adoption. Everything else, hype cycle crash. It's not even just a lack of utility. It's the way we think about NFTs as having to have value because they have a finite supply. I think that's a root cause of version one failures or disinterest at least. Could you elaborate on the product adoption curve? Because in my head, it's like this S-curve where you have early adopters and then more and more people and then <laughs> the late adopters. But in terms of accumulated, it goes towards 100% as everyone adopts it? Right, right. You're thinking, you're thinking of the product adoption curve, right, as a logistical function. Like yes. This, right? That's totally reasonable. When you look at the actual usage, right, the usage, that curve looks like that. Right when you when you actually track it against use and like, okay, and that's no different than say a movie release. Right, a movie comes out, do 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 do. Wow, everyone's watching it. Eh, you get another bump, you get another bump, and then trails off DVD sales or you know streaming services. Yeah, now. same with yeah, games right probably. Right, and games are a lot like that. Notice though, online games have the potential to do different curves. Right, so CS:GO. Yep. It's it's still going up in a nice little linear track, right? So when you that's where I want to see version two NFTs go, right? I want to see adoption that moves more in a linear uh, acceleration, right? Instead of like a massive exponential and then a fall. I want to see growth. Yeah, that's that's what I want to see. And it feels to me like the the whole adoption curve where this is huge spike and then this crash mm -hmm. is almost always purely like the reason it looks like that is is less i feel like be, because it resembles adoption curves and more mm. because it resembles booms and busts from the stock market where people start speculating and there's this this vicious cycle of people like the price going up and people are like holy shit i'm missing out so i'm jumping yeah. on top of it and so um yeah and then i guess my question is like okay how, how do we turn it into um the yeah. forever game style curve where it just keeps going up what's your, what's your solution tim where do I've I got, tell me? I got a theory, right? I got a theory, and I'm, I'm going to take this straight out of virtual world game design, right? So I'm I'm probably just going to be. You've already done interviews with people like Raf Coster and others, so I'm just going to parrot back some very important game learnings over the last 20 years, and that is fixed supplies don't work, right? They just don't work long term. We we know that any any kind of digital asset that has any utility at all, if there's a fixed supply of them. It's going to end up being a feudal system of early adopters who massively take over the market and then gatekeep for the new users, right? And then you've got people, there's no incentive not to flip. That's, that's essentially all the activity becomes, right? So I will say that, and again, I'm going to call back to Ultima Online because that's a, that's a fun use case and there's nice research paper you guys can look up on it. Um, They did try a fixed supply right at, right at the beginning of the game with resources, like chopping down trees, like you had to like use the wood or burn the wood, and then it'll go back into the resource pool and then make another tree, right? And of course, the players burned through that in like days. It was, didn't work, right? So they had to shut that off. Now, the interesting thing is they took the next lesson and said, okay, well, we have to have a faucet. We have to create things dynamically, but we should add some drains in the economy and encourage players to like just pull these things out because players will hoard things. You know, if you have an open economy, you're going to get two activities. You're going to get hoarding and people are going to forget about it. Or you're going to get like people who want like piles of crud that they want to get rid of. What do you do? You 
do turn-in events. You have ways to use it. You smelt things together and give them better upgrades, right? There is an entire set of game mechanics taken from role-playing games that we can apply to NFTs version 2, and they don't even have to be role-playing games, but the mechanics are sound, right? Those things can belong in NFTs that are more open-ended, where instead of saying, hey, I'm going to go ahead and pre-print 10 pieces of hair times 10 pieces of clothes times 10 eyeballs times 10 faces and make 10,000 generative, you know, art pieces. No, I'm going to, I'm going to make an NFT that uses dice rolling mechanics. And maybe it's more like a D and D character where, you know, you have a chance to roll certain attributes, mostly on average, right? Mostly in the bell curve. But, you know, if you go ahead and say, I want the best of the best starting point, you sit there and you iterate over the possibility space. And in this case, I'm, I'm really talking about like uh, a number that goes through a random number generator and generates attributes, right? That's what I'm really talking about. So if, if you set the probability table to be like, hey, one in a million gives you a plus one on the stat, then people are going to sit there and iterate over the possibilities. And what have we learned from Bitcoin and Ethereum? Numbers are big. Like the basic unit in Ethereum and Bitcoin is a 256-bit integer, right? Unsigned integer. The number itself when expressed from zero to that number is unfathomable. It might as well be infinity. It's not infinity, I know that. But it might as well be because we don't have enough atoms in the universe to build computers that could iterate over that field fast enough. You could throw all the hash power in the world at it, and it's not going to make a dent. So that gives you a huge possibility space to play with with very accessible technology that we have today. You could absolutely make NFTs like that. I'm going to make NFTs like that, by the way. Um, and then we can put, you know, some very interesting mechanics on top of it and turn them into games, right? But I think there are ways to do NFTs that are not just generative art. That's where I'm going with this. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um and so as far as I understand you, you think that in the vast majority of cases, NFTs with a fixed supply and utility uh, will be detrimental to the success of any game in which they can be used. Yeah, that's that's my theory based on, you know, what we've seen out of virtual worlds over the last like two decades. Right. And again, it doesn't matter how much utility you add to it. The very notion that if, if the economy is only a fixed supply, right. I think long-term it's going to have serious problems. Now, again, if you know you're getting into it like that, okay, that's fine, right? Bored Apes knows that it's a country club. It's literally called the Bored Ape Yacht Club. It is literally a country club. That's a real-life concept. People have country clubs where there's only a 1,000 members, right, and they have to trade those memberships. Fine. But as far as making fun games around it and including lots of people, well, okay, that's a very different thing. Yeah, and so that sense. applies to both fungible and non-fungible tokens in your mind, then, right? I I agree. And here's what's weird about here's what's weird about Bitcoin, right? Whenever I talk to Bitcoin crypto bros, right, or Bitcoin maxis, they're like, "Hey, it is awesome because it is it is a, a deflationary currency." I was like, "But it's not right now. It is not a deflationary currency. It is inflationary right now. The rate at which it's inflating is deflation is disinflationary." Right, it cuts itself over time, but there's still enough new stuff being added to the market, um, the total economy, that we haven't hit the point where the reward value, the Bitcoin reward per block, has um, 
like kind of hit that weird point where minor transactions really are more important, right? So we don't know what's going to happen when when Bitcoin gets to that point. We don't know if the halvings will have like killed interest in Bitcoin like 50 years from now. We don't know. But I do know that Bitcoin can succeed right now because it just acts like an inflationary currency, right? Ethereum does too. Don't get me wrong. There are other there are other interesting currencies that are completely deflationary and maybe they have a lot of market value. I don't know. But yeah, Bitcoin, I, I would never call it deflationary right now. It's intended to be deflationary. That's where I'm going with that. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I feel like we can probably do a whole other discussion on Bitcoin, whether yeah. it makes sense. Um, and also the, the types of tokens, because um, if you scroll back in our economics to economics channel, you'll see a, a heat heated debate about inflationary currencies and whether they make sense in games. So yeah. if it's not inflationary, yeah. but also not deflationary, Tim, what's it going to be, man? Is it going to be all stable well, coins? Yeah, I've heard a lot of people, even in our FogDAO channels, right, talking about various options, like maybe we need multi-token approaches where you've got a, a deflationary currency and an inflationary currency side by side with it, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to try something interesting where I have an inflationary like NFT mining system, but there, it's like a dual token economy, right? So one side is like the power-ups, but they decay if you don't use them. So they, they come with like actual ex expiration dates. If they're more rare, they last longer, which means they could be traded. But otherwise, it just incentivizes people to use the things in the game with the other NFTs as they're intended, right? Um, and I really think this idea of exploring expiration of NFTs is interesting, right? I, I, not just on its own merits of like just being an interesting idea, but I think it makes sense, right? If you want to encourage people to spend time and resources doing an activity and they have uh, an NFT reward from some activity and it has to be used like within the next couple of days or a week or something before it's gone, well, then it gets used, right? And then you have a, like a cycle that you can work with. It's, I, I strongly feel it's worth exploring, even though it's incredibly hard to model because all the tokenomic companies I talk to are like, oh, we don't know what to do with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I would say that my my thinking around this right now is I'm, I'm fully aligned with you that, well, let's put it this way. I think we all, all three of us here agree, and if you're listening to this, I, I think you'll agree as well, is that the current state of, of NFTs for games is is a bit stale, and I don't think it, it's... It's it's productive at this point, right? Yeah. I think you know um, if you're doing another ten thousand drop, especially if it has utility in your game, um, you're probably going to have a bad time and, unless you have a very good marketing department, and then you can ride the whole wave. Um, yep. And so, I guess what I'm I'm rooting for, Tim, is um, you know examples like your randomly mm -hmm. generated NFTs that are mm -hmm. like, you know, based on, on, on the numbers that you mentioned or yeah. um, expiring games, NFTs. Yeah. I think depending on the game, just, you know, I feel like in the end, I think game developers have always been pretty um, creative in terms of assets and digital assets, yeah. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and incredibly so. And that's what, that's what drives a stake through my heart, right? When I see the current climate, and you called this out, right? People will drop a 10,000 NFT collection because why? 
they have an underlying currency utility token underneath mm. that they want to take from 0. 0.00001 cent par value to a dollar somehow one day because then that makes them filthy, filthy rich. It doesn't make the game any better, right? So it's just people chasing investments. Can we use that creativity from the game industry? All the lessons, look, Bartle, Coster, even uh, Keith Bergon, right? He's got amazing strategy game design stuff. How can we not like take all of these amazing lessons, right, over the last three or four decades and turn that into things that we would want to show our spouses or show our children and feel good about them playing with, right? Yeah. And that right now, I'm not there with Web3 yet, even though I'm a huge Web3. I love it. Yeah. And I think that the thing that always confuses me about Web3 sometimes is how backwards it is. Um, where when we think about like V1 of, of NFT and V2 of NFT, yeah. I almost think of it as simple as moving from pure speculation due to a lack of actual functional value to having functional value that then drives the prices and you know maybe there's speculation on top of that but today but today it's like with with fungible tokens and nfts alike game game studios are almost trying to drive value towards their game from the theoretical value that's created from their hype where you know if you have a fungible token like honestly like an alluvium call it you have a multi-billion dollar fully diluted market cap with nothing to show for it in terms of a game you're Mm -hmm. trying to drive hype and attention and a user base to your game from from pure speculation in terms of what will be there one day and yeah you know that that it's it is it is kind of completely backwards in that regard yeah it's so it's so ironic you say that because even i fell into that trap early on right like i was even a couple of months ago i was fully convinced that in order for me to prove the utility and the neatness of this like new any any new nft experiment we needed to make future games against those nfts right Instead of taking all those game lessons, those game design lessons and knowledge, um, heck, I remember when the gamification craze was a thing. I, have, I probably have a certification for that. And taking all of that, putting those in the NFTs, making mm-hmm. the NFTs their own experiences, right? Okay, that's cool. Trying to say, hey, we're going to make this cool NFT and in two years there's going to be an amazing game to play with it. Yeah, right? DOA. I don't think there's any future in that anymore. Yeah. Agreed. Good. All right. Um, yeah. I mean, if you listen to this, I hope you, um, you're inspired to do something different. Don't do what Tim does. Cause that's what Tim is doing. Do something else, you know, be creative. <laughs> I've got a really boring paper, so don't worry. Uh, you guys can follow it once, once we're clear with it. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you want to fall asleep, ask Tim for his yeah. paper. Oh my God. I actually referenced that in a pitch deck as I'm going to take this boring paper and turn it into something fun. See boring picture. Nice picture. Yeah. <laughs> Good. All right, Tim. Thank you so much for joining. Tim Cotton All Scripted. Right. Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at Twitter, Cotton.io, right? At Cotton.io. You can find me at my blog, literally blog.cotton.io. Here's the only thing. My last name is spelled C-O-T-T-E-N. God knows why. Oh, wait. No, I know. Because a doctor messed up on my grandfather's name, and he had 12 brothers and sisters named C-O-T-T-O-N. How? How do you really? use the one? Funny. Good. Great. All right, Tim Cotton. And Phil, where can people find you? I have min- minimal social media presence, as Nico knows. Um, but I'm, I, I do Twitter infrequently. Honestly, this is probably the best place to find me. I do at Philip M. Collins, Telegram, Twitter. How about LinkedIn, man? You were doing like uh, blockchain gaming updates. Did you sub those? 
I don't yeah, see those I anymore. Stopped, I stopped doing the weekly updates when I felt like the weekly updates started getting too redundant. Mm. And for a while there, it was like somebody released a new token. Big company mm-hmm. put in small fire check into into Web3 Game Studio. Yeah. And eventually I was like, man, this is getting really repetitive. And so, you know, me stopping doing those hasn't been from a lack of interest and in, in conviction in this space. I just think that after a while I was like, man, this is the same thing over and yeah. over and over. That's fair. That's fair. Good. And then uh, obviously the best way to chat with these gentlemen is, is join us in the Discord. Um, yes. Most importantly, that's that's where you get most out of Tim, for sure. <laughs> and you guys, too. And us. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're active as well. That's very true. Um, if you like this, please let us know. You can like, subscribe, all of the good stuff, um, even on the podcast. Uh, that's very much appreciated. Join us in the Discord. Um, and with that, we're out. And we look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Ciao.